This morning, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to you, my God, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there is no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of elegant wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It was one of the oddest fundraisers that I have ever been a part of, and yet probably one of the most fun fundraisers that I've ever participated in. I forget what my youth baseball league called it, but it was something to the effect of smash a car with a sledgehammer fundraising extravaganza. That's the name I'll put on it. Some of you are nodding your head. You've been a part of something like this, right? So you pay money to take a sledgehammer and swing away at an old car. Uh, it's typically a price for three swings. If you want to double it up, you pay twice, you get six. Three times, you get nine. I don't know quite what it says about our culture that an organization can make lots of money off our desire to destroy things. We'll leave that for another time. But I do want to say, I remember vividly in South Florida, this was our big baseball fundraiser, and this old car would be there at the beginning of the day, and they'd have that fundraiser with a sledgehammer, and by the end of the day, this car looked completely different. You know, there was the easy things up front. If you got there early, you could smash a headlight, smash a window. But what you really wanted to do was to take this sledgehammer and swing it so hard that you put a massive dent in the fender or a massive dent in the hood, whatever it may be. You had, when you got your swings, you had three, you had to use them well, but you had a vision. And, I, and I'll, let me soften on the destruction language and say that you had a vision to reshape this car We'll use that. But this car would sit there and literally all day long be reshaped by people taking their swings at it. In a similar way, here's the reality. There are people, there are forces, there are ideologies that are taking their swings at your life in the church every day to reshape you. 
See, the question is not, are you being shaped? Of course you are. The question is, what are the primary shaping influences in your life? What is actually shaping you? Now, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. And here's why. A couple reasons. One is, uh, we tend to not be very self-aware. It's hard for us to see how we're being shaped. Probably it's a great question to ask somebody that knows you really well to say how you're being shaped. The other is this, that we have massive blind spots. We have massive blind spots to how we are being shaped and influenced every day in every atmosphere, in every culture that we find ourselves in. Paul is writing this letter, this new sermon series we're launching on is a letter to a church in the first century in the city of Corinth to a people who have massive blind spots. And Paul is gonna write a letter to make them aware of the ways that they're being shaped, the ways that they're being influenced primarily by the culture around them. So that's where we start in answering this question. What is or what are the primary shaping influences in your life? We're going to start with the culture, the cultural moment. So in Corinth, this letter was written. What was the situation in Corinth? Now, this is critical. When Paul writes letters in the New Testament, he doesn't write them into a vacuum. He writes it into a real, live context. You would read a letter differently from a parent, a a parent from a or a letter from a parent to a child that's living in the war-torn Middle East than a letter written from a parent to a child in a beautiful coastal town in Hawaii, right? Those letters would look different, but knowing the context, you would understand a little bit more of what's being said in those letters if you were to read them. Same applies here. We're gonna read a lot in this letter in the coming months in the fall. And it's going to make sense when you understand the situation that Paul was writing into. So what was the situation in Corinth? I'm going to give you some background on the city of Corinth. This is going to help build on all these sermons and all that happens in this letter. So what was, what was Corinth? It was a prosperous commercial city. And it was in the middle of what was called this east-west trade route that connected the Mediterranean to the Aegean Sea. And it was actually on a very narrow strip of land. Think of like an hourglass. It was located on a narrow strip on the water. And so everything from east to west would, would, would condense down and go through Corinth. So it was a very active, prosperous city. It was formerly a Greek city-state. It was sacked by Rome in 146 BC. And then Julius Caesar refounded it as a Roman colony in 44 BC. And so it was populated with a bunch of Roman freedmen and ex-slaves who were coming to the city looking for a new start, a new city with a ton of opportunity for advancement. Socially, economically, they would pour into this city for a new beginning. So it was, it was prosperous. It was cutthroat competitive. This was a competitive city, and you can see why. All this new money all this opportunity to get rich, to advance economically, socially, people just climbing on top of each other, cutthroat competitive. It was religiously diverse and pluralistic, which means there were tons of gods, tons of temples. In fact, probably the biggest temple was on a hill that overlooked the city, and it was a a temple to Aphrodite, 
who was the Greek goddess of sexual love. And that will explain when we get into further into the letter where Paul talks about sexuality. It was a city that was, it was promiscuous, rampant prostitution. Marriage fidelity was extremely rare in Corinth. It was a young city with the upwardly mobile, huge amounts of insecurity and obsession with appearance. Corinth was the place where um, there was more concern about appearance than about fact, that makes sense. More concern about what I appear to be than what I truly am. In fact, we pick this up a little bit in, in verse 17, where Paul says, not with words of eloquent wisdom. What's eloquent wisdom? That's not a compliment. Okay, that, that is eloquent wisdom. Another word for it would be rhetoric. It's using language to impress someone that doesn't necessarily have any truth or grounding to it. It's just, it's a show. It's language that wants to put an appearance out there. One author says that Corinth was, they uh, thrived on self-promotion and public boasting. The eloquent wisdom, the rhetoric in Corinth would be the equivalent to what social media is to us today. That's what was going on in Corinth. So widespread insecurity, incessant need to promote yourself, to build yourself up, to advance. Paul writes this letter. Five years earlier, he had been in Corinth. He was there for 18 months with this new church teaching the word of God. He leaves and then he gets this report of trouble in Corinth. And so five years later to this young church, he writes this letter back to them. That's the situation in Corinth. I hope you see the many similarities to American culture. Just to name a few, to make some obvious connections for you so you understand what letter we're reading here. Okay? Corporate America, marked by cutthroat competition, right? Advance at all, cost, at all costs. Promote yourself. The incessant need to promote yourself with social media being the primary means in our culture to do that, right? Which is the equivalent to the eloquent wisdom that was in Corinth. We're a culture obsessed with appearance, marked by widespread insecurity. We're, we're, a, we're a culture that attaches to celebrities as a means of making yourself worth something or building a reputation. You attach yourself to someone famous, right? And we're a sexually broken and confused culture in the same way Corinth was. So all that is background to say, and, and you'll hear it here and there, we are living in unprecedented times. And what we mean when we say that is that it's never been worse than this. And the Apostle Paul would say, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was in Corinth, right? <laughs> Corinth was, was a mess. No different than what we're facing today. So lots of similarities with the cultural pressures and things that we're facing. That's the cultural moment. So how does this cultural situation shape Corinth? How's it shaping Corinth? How does culture shape tend to shape the church. And we're gonna explore this by looking at the problem in Corinth. We're gonna look at the nature of the problem and then the root of it. So the nature of it, kind of on the surface what it is, and then what at the root is really feeding it. Nature of the problem. Look at verses 10 to 16. What was the problem? Here it is. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, what's the quarreling? Verse 12. 
Paul says, what I mean by the quarreling is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. Many have noted that the the division in Corinth, the factions that had sprouted up, weren't over doctrine. It was over personal preference for a preacher's style or a leader's style, that that was really where the division was coming from in Corinth. All these little factions were growing up around what we would call today would be like celebrities. Apollo, Cephas, Paul, they were like Christian celebrities in the early church. These were the big leaders. These were the big pastors. And so what the Corinthians were doing, they were taking pride in their leaders and their pastors and saying, you know, I like the way mine says it better than yours. Mine says it better than that, you know, and dividing over that. And here's what we see is that the same thing they were doing in Corinth, which was all about building an image, promoting yourself, attaching to someone to make a name for yourself, had just been imported into the church. And so now Paul and Apollos and Cephas become the new celebrities that they would attach themselves to and take pride in. I don't know how other way to say it than this. Christian celebrity is an oxymoron. The only celebrity, so to speak, to ever live ended up in utter humility on the cross. There's no such thing as a Christian celebrity. And so, similar to what they were doing in Corinth 2,000 or so years ago, celebrity pastors, celebrity churches, uh, taking pride in your leaders or your pastors or your style of church over another style of church is in absolute opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It in no way resembles the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see is how Paul gets at this, how he reasons this. Look at verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? He's making the point. There's only one celebrity, so to speak. There's only one hero in the story of the world. It's Jesus Christ. There's only one Lord worth following. So if you're telling me you're following Apollos and Paul and Cephas, then you're telling me Christ is divided. Paul's saying to him, it just doesn't make any sense. It's nonsense. There's no place for celebrity in Christianity. We follow a Lord who made himself of no reputation. Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 to 8. Jesus made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so any reputation building in the church is absolutely contrary to our Lord that we follow that made himself of no reputation. Now let me show you how easy it is to build a reputation, to make a name, to gain status at anything. You notice at the end of verse 12, it says, I follow Apollos, Paul, Cephas, and then he says, I follow Christ. And you go, isn't that the point? Aren't we supposed to follow Christ, right? What's Paul saying there? You see what he's saying. There were people that probably said, hey, I don't fall into that celebrity stuff. 
I don't worship pastors. I don't worship churches in different styles. I just follow Jesus Christ. You see, spiritual pride. You can make anything into an, an issue of building up your reputation. So there were even some that said, I don't do the de denominational thing. I don't do the preacher worship thing. I got past that. I just follow Jesus. Right? That, it's this pride. It's this reputation building that sets you apart from someone else. That's the key. Elevating yourself apart or above someone else. So what's the root of the problem in Corinth? That's the nature of the problem. Is, is this, this disunity, this division that is raising up in, in the different factions in the church that's around people attaching themselves to a certain personality. The root of the problem is that the culture of Corinth was shaping the church. Another way to say it is that these cultural attitudes that I, that I spelled out in the city, these cultural attitudes were infiltrating the church so that what was happening out there outside of Christ just got morphed into the church and the same kind of celebrity worship and factions and divisions and pride and elevating over another person was happening in the church. And the way that Paul describes the reason for the Corinthians attaching themselves to a, a personality or a person, a pastor, is over in chapter three of 1 Corinthians, verses three to four. Listen to what he says. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? I love that. You see what Paul's saying? Apart from God, just separate yourself from God, from Christ, any work he's doing. To be human is to be jealous and envious apart from God. You don't have a choice because there's no other way to, to make a name for yourself. There's no other way to set you apart. There's no other way to build an identity other than, again, apart from God, to elevate yourself over someone. And so this jealousy and this envy resulted in, I follow this one, I follow that one. Mine's better than yours right? And these factions and these divisions start to develop. And so when Paul says, are you behaving only in a human way? It's another way of him saying, listen, Corinthians, your culture, the Corinthian culture, right, is shaping the church rather than the church being shaped by, and now we get to the third point. What, what is to be shaping the church of Jesus Christ? What is to shape the church of Jesus Christ? And to put succinctly, it's the cross. It's the cross of Christ. And let me show you where this comes from. We're gonna look at the cross, how it shapes how we live and also who we are. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, what does Paul mean there? He baptized people. What he's saying is, I, I didn't come to get in this celebrity circus right? Where I'm baptizing more than Apollos, or I'm baptizing more than Cephas. Or he's, I didn't come to get into that circus. Yes, I'm baptizing people. I came to preach the gospel, is what Paul says. And listen, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's saying not with eloquent wisdom. That's the rhetoric. He said, I didn't, 
I'm not preaching the gospel using fancy words, being showy about it to build my reputation, to make people think I'm great, to win more followers than the next guy. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Because to do that is to empty the cross of its power. And what we learn here is that the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ absolutely redefines the cultural notions of status, of reputation, of success, of wealth. Right? The cross doesn't just save you from your sin. It does that. Jesus paid for it all on the cross. But the cross of Jesus Christ turns the value system of our world and our culture upside down so that how you gain a reputation, success, status, wealth, all that's completely redefined. So Paul's telling these Corinthians, listen, the cross is being emptied of its power if you're importing these cultural views into the church and just these attitudes that aren't consistent with the cross of Jesus Christ. When you come to Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of sin, and he takes your sin away, past, present, and future, what Paul's saying here, if we can import it to today, is you don't bring the American cultural values into the church, into your life, and continue living the same way. The cross, it saves you, but then it absolutely transforms and restructures your entire value system on life. Let me give you an example of this, and let me give you a preface to this example. I'm using this illustratively as an illustration. I am not using this from a, or, or speaking it from a posture of judgment, lest I go against what Paul is talking about here with all the factions that had built, built up. So what I'm going to share is to illustrate and to recognize to some degree every church struggles with this in different ways, right? Before I moved to Jacksonville, Florida, I was in a, in a city, had friends that went to a certain church. And at this church on select Sundays, they would at the end have a call to come to Jesus Christ, surrender your life to Christ, and they would immediately baptize people. It would be a kind of a spontaneous baptism. And so uh, what they would do is they would take members in the congregation, those who had come to Christ, were in Christ, and they would ask them to sit up in the front rows and when that call came for people to come forward and come to Christ and be baptized, they told those members to stand up and start coming down. And it would be a way of breaking the ice, okay, to get people to follow. And one of my friends was talking with one of the pastors of the church, and he said, isn't that manipulation? And his response was, yes, but at least it's manipulation in the right direction. Do you see how that's an example? Of a, of, a, of a value behavior that dominates our culture, manipulation, and imports it into the church and uses it certainly for a, in a positive direction, yes. But there's no room for manipulation in the cross of Jesus Christ. See, manipulation is saying, I'm gonna use my eloquent wisdom, my words, my rhetoric, whatever it is, right, to, to control a person towards a desired outcome. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says there's no place for manipulation because God is in control. God has the outcome. God has the power. So we don't manipulate people to something. 
Rather, we surrender. That's the message of the cross, that we surrender ourselves to an all-powerful God, a God who accomplished victory through the humiliation of the cross. I share that as an example. Every church, even Christ Church East, to some degree, in some way, is guilty of manipulation because that's how the world works. Listen, if you're in corporate America, that's how it works, right? Here's the outcome. You do whatever you can get to get there. Manipulate, move people, whatever it is to get there. I mean, it's just our culture. That's how you get things done. And you come to the the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you're done with that in the kingdom because you're no longer in control both in control with power and in control of saying, here's the outcome. God determines what the outcome is. God determines what we move towards, what we surrender. And Jesus Christ does his work. So here are some questions to ask. If the cross doesn't just save us, but actually teaches us how to live, here are some questions that I'd want you to reflect on. How does the cross shape the way you parent? How does it shape the way you coach? How does it shape the way you teach in the classroom? Uh, How does it shape the way you sell product in the business world as a salesperson? How does it shape the way you manage your team of people at work? How does it shape the way you report to your boss? How does it shape the way you treat a roommate or treat a teammate? The cross shapes how we live, but it doesn't just do that. It shapes who we are. And this is where we turn to the very beginning of this letter, verses one to nine, where Paul, if you were to read the whole letter and see the harsh words he has for these Corinthians, and you read the first nine verses and and, and how he addresses them, it's a head scratcher. It's a little surprising what he says to these people. Listen to what he says. Verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Corinthians, you're sanctified. What's that mean? Well, sanctified means to be set apart for sacred use. And then even more surprisingly, he calls them saints. The Corinthians, he calls them saints, which that root word for saints is is sanctified. So saints just means the set apart ones. You see what he, he opens the letter before he gives them any critique and and any in calling them out for sin and the error of their ways. He says, you are saints in Christ Jesus, that you have been set apart. You don't have to set yourself apart. You see, that was their deal. They had to set themselves apart, build a reputation, advance, advance, advance. And he's saying, no, you've already been set apart. What's this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament tabernacle, there were articles in the tabernacle that were in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews talks about this, that were literally, they were sanctified. So there were cups and bowls that would be sanctified or set apart for use in the service of God in the tabernacle. And they weren't to be used for anything else. But here's the deal. Those cups and bowls were no different intrinsically than the cups and bowls that were used in common households and that were used in the marketplace. There was nothing different. The only difference was that these bowls, these vessels had been set apart for service to God. 
and that that's by grace. Look at what Paul says to these Corinthians. He says, you're set apart. And let me remind you, you didn't set yourself apart by good works. Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus by grace, meaning not something we've earned. I set you apart sheerly by grace, not by your efforts or good works. Then verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's he saying to him? You didn't call yourself. I mean, that seems fairly obvious, but it is, it's unbelievable to think about. God's saying, you didn't call yourself. I called you. I set you apart by grace. You're to be a vessel through which my mercy and grace is poured out. And you're to be a vessel to be used for my service. And that's it. Not to be used by the world, not to be shaped by the culture, but be used by me. And then the astonishing statement, again, you're gonna see as we read through this letter, the astonishing statement in verse eight, that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, he says to these Corinthians, you are guiltless. You are guiltless. And you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross of Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ, every one of your sins, past, present, and future, is taken away, is removed. And what's left is you're guiltless, without blame. That's what he's saying to these Corinthians. Let me try to illustrate it this way. He's saying to these Corinthians, or he's addressing them, not as caterpillars, and telling them to fly like a butterfly. He's not saying, hey, you're a caterpillar, now fly. Figure it out, fly, fly. No, he's saying, you're a butterfly. Quit crawling. Become who you already are. Right? That's who they are. Right? They're, they're new creations. The cross shapes who you are, and it shapes how you live. My children have this little Play-Doh toolkit. And it's, a, um, it's like this extruder. So you, you take all these different attachments that have different shapes and you stick one on the end and then you take a lump of Play-Doh and you stick it in and then you just push it. And this lump of clay or lump of Play-Doh comes out the other side as some shape. Apart from God to use Paul's language of you're being merely human, right? Just take God out of the picture. Anything supernatural, just you on your own, right? You are a, you're a lump of Play-Doh. And the culture, whether you are conscious of it or not, and the world around you in your own flesh, it, it, it is pushing you through to make you into its own image on the other side. When you've been called by Jesus Christ, when you've been sanctified, when you've been set apart for his sacred use, God puts the attachment on the end of this little tool, so to speak. And the attachment is the image of Jesus Christ. Cross, death, resurrection, glory. He puts the attachment on there and then he throughout your life, and this is what we would call progressive sanctification, where you actually do become who you already are. 
and he pushes you and he moves you through and you know what that process is like if you've watched it. it, it the edges get ripped off and then, and then out at the end comes this beautiful finished product. That's what God's doing. Look what he says. Verse nine, God is faithful. Verse eight, Jesus will sustain you to the end. So in a letter where he's gonna do a lot of calling out on these Corinthians, he starts by saying, you're saints, you're sanctified, you're set apart. And God, the faithful God, is preparing a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. You know, scriptures speak of Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and we are the bride. And God says, I am shaping you, I am preparing you for Verse seven, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You all are familiar with wedding days. And if you've been a bride, you know what happens on the wedding day. You make yourself beautiful. Get your hair done. You put your makeup on. Dress is pure white. It's beautiful. You prepare, right, to be married, to be united. Now, here's the difference. You prepare yourself on the wedding day. What we see here, it says Jesus Christ, God the Father, Jesus sustain you to the end. That God is preparing you for that day when the bridegroom will return. And he is making you beautiful. And he's stripping off everything that doesn't belong so that you come out the image of Jesus Christ. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ that does that stripping and shaping so that you're shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, not in the image of this culture, in this world. And God is writing this letter to this church in Corinth and to us in 2018 to say, I am, I am building my church, growing my bride, shaping my bride by the cross of Jesus Christ to be ready for that day and to look very, very, very different than the cultural value system of this world in a way that's attractive. Because every person on the face of this world is made in the image of God. There is truth down in there deep at some place that is longing for purpose and meaning in life and something beautiful in our broken and divided and torn world. And the church is to be that picture of beauty, right? Works in progress of God shaping through his cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of your gospel. We see it here in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that you're, you're honest with us. You were honest with the Corinthians. You're honest with us today. You don't hold back from telling us where our sin is getting the best of us or where we're being shaped by the culture instead of by your, the cross and the word. But the beauty of the gospel is how you open this letter, Father that you call your children in Corinth that had all kinds of mess in their lives, you call them saints, sanctified ones, that you're gonna continue to sanctify and shape to prepare for your bride, for your son, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And Father, we hear that and we rejoice in the hope of the gospel. 
Every one of us needs reshaping. We all have sin. We all have broken pasts. We all have family upbringings that, are, that span the, the spectrum of awful to decent. We have wounds. And we plead with you, Father, that by your grace, you would remind us every morning that if we're in Christ, we're saints, that we are set apart for your use, and that all that's by your grace, not by our works or our doing, and that that would be the motivation for us to become who we already are and to see the cross of Jesus Christ shape us and shave off those edges that we would become and be conformed to, as we read in Romans 8, the image of Jesus Christ. Father, as we continue to worship, would you make us a grateful people? And Father, for those that are here that have never surrendered or put their trust in Jesus Christ, oh, Father, by your spirit, I pray you would draw them. We pray this all in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.